0: Today on the Florida Roundup, how the pendulum of public health power in Florida has swung from local governments to the state.
1: The ability of county health departments
2: to work in the best interests of their community has been truncated, and has been eliminated. Also, why are fewer children not receiving routine vaccinations?
3: So what's different about COVID is people put it in a different category. So in their minds, COVID does not equal polio and all these other diseases that we have vaccinated for.
0: Also coming up, a big settlement over pain pills.
2: This is the Florida Roundup from WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Tom Hudson.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross. Join us for the Florida Roundup after this news.
2: Support for the Florida
4: Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through ABCFWS.com.
2: Welcome to the Florida Roundup on Florida Public Radio. I'm Tom Hudson in Miami.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Today on the show, we're sharing reporting from across the state from our public media partners. We'll dive into why childhood vaccination rates have dropped, not for COVID-19 vaccines for kids, but the usual doses for measles, whooping cough, and chicken pox.
2: We'll also hear from a hospice nurse near Tampa who's been providing end-of-life care for almost 20 years. But she says the COVID-19 pandemic made things worse.
5: It's hard, you know, when I'm racking up the numbers, you know, in my brain thinking, oh my God, how many people have I sent to the morgue with COVID? And it's a scary number. Me personally, and I only work, what, two and a half days a week.
2: Her story will be later on in this program.
0: And we'll also bring you the story of a minor league baseball game in Lakeland this spring with the Tampa Tarpons. What made it historic was that it was the first men's minor league team managed by a woman, and it brought out young fans.
6: It's kind of a, a big deal for a woman to be coaching a baseball team because it's not—it's very rare for, to see that.
2: We start with a push and pull in Florida over power, policy, and public health. In Florida, the decisions about infectious disease and all kinds of issues related to public health come from the state capital, Tallahassee calls the shots on things like masking, vaccines, and quarantines. For decades, though, individual counties actually had a lot of say over public health here in the Sunshine State. WLRN's Danny Rivero and Veronica Zaragovia explored the balance of power with public health
7: in the podcast Tallahassee Takeover. Compared to a lot of states across the U.S., the state of Florida has a largely centralized public health system. Instead of local officials making decisions about public health policy and spending, almost every aspect of all of those decisions happens in Tallahassee. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, that top-down approach has gotten political with Florida's surgeon general and governor making decisions that many doctors and local leaders say run contrary to science. So, this seems like a good time to talk about how public health decisions get made in Florida, and also why local leaders get overruled. I'm joined now by my colleague, Veronica Saragovia, who covers healthcare for WLRN. Veronica, welcome to Tallahassee Takeover.
8: Thank you, Danny. Hi.
7: So, just to start with, we're going to be talking about public health. And public health is different from healthcare. Things like your access to a primary care physician and specialists, whether you have health insurance, things like that. Public health is different.
8: Exactly. Public health is how we protect communities from something like an infectious disease or promoting general health. Think of encouraging physical activity, monitoring for air pollution and doing restaurant inspections for sanitation. Public health is when you track data to figure out how to stop an infectious disease from spreading. And it's also things like mounting vaccination campaigns against polio or hepatitis, for example. And of course, it's 2022, and public health also includes
7: all things COVID-19. And we'll definitely be getting into COVID-19 in a few. But I just want to point out that in Florida, public health also includes things like controlling mosquitoes to prevent the spread of diseases like dengue, chikungunya, Zika, if you remember that from a few years ago. And mosquitoes actually played a huge role in the early history of our state and in shaping what public health looks like here. So when Florida first became a state in 1845, a lot of decisions about public health were left up to counties and towns. There weren't a ton of people in Florida at the time. And for the most part, the modern state that we think of as Florida only existed in the northern and central parts of the peninsula. But Veronica, tell us when this local-based reality for public health really started to shift here.
8: In 1888, Danny, the city of Jacksonville had a major yellow fever epidemic that created this panic across the state. Yellow fever is transmitted through mosquitoes, but nobody knew that at the time. And so all these cities started coming up with their own plans for how to fight yellow fever. And they were not coordinated. You couldn't travel from one city to the next. And since everyone had different rules during the epidemic it became an issue actually not only for health, but for the state economy.
7: And I actually pulled up some old newspaper articles that showed some towns in Florida had so-called shotgun quarantine policies, where if you tried to come into town, the townspeople would stand on the perimeter with shotguns and threaten to shoot you dead. In Jacksonville alone, a total of 427 people died from that yellow fever epidemic. And that's according to the Florida Historical Society.
8: 1888 was also an election year, and Democrat Francis Fleming ran for governor. He was a former Confederate soldier from Jacksonville. Actually, he's pretty universally known to have been a huge racist. And when he came to office in 1889, he called for a special session of the Florida legislature to create a statewide health agency. And his reasoning at the time was that since every county had different rules, It made things impossible during times of an epidemic.
7: And Governor Fleming complained that during his campaign, there were parts of the state where he could not campaign because he would have been shot on sight if he went to some of these cities. So the Florida legislature created the State Board of Health under his direction. And for the first time, Florida had a statewide public health system where everything flowed from the state capitol down to the different counties. This system lasted for 80 years. But then in 1968, officials in Florida rewrote the state constitution. And this new version abolished the State Board of Health. So, from one year to the next, public health in Florida went from being highly centralized to highly decentralized. And along with this was the creation of local health departments. Every county had their own local health department. And these New health departments played a huge role in people's lives. I was
9: born and raised 90 miles from here in Glaze County, which is considered a rural county and still is a rural county. So I grew up in a very small town in a class of 13. Annie Niesman would grow up
8: to lead the biggest county health department in Florida. She was the director of the Dave County Health Department from 1990 to 2000. And today, she is the CEO of the Jesse Trice Community Health System in Miami. There
9: were 13 individuals in my classroom. And I knew public the public health department back during my time as a child and as a teenager. That's where we received our health care. That's where we went to get our shots. At that time, we did have one uh, doctor in the entire county, uh, but most of the care that we received was from the public health department.
8: Niesman remembers what it was like when public health was a local thing, like in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew 30 years ago. That hurricane completely devastated some parts of South Dade.
9: We knew from the Miami-Dade Public Health Department that we were in this for the long run. We set up tent cities. We set up medical units, medical tents. We set up what we call a chat teams, community health action teams that went door to door, uh, assisting individuals with whatever their needs may have been. You know, of course, the many agencies that came in, uh, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, all of those individuals or organizations that serve meals, serve hot meals, uh, provided shelter, uh, provided clothing, provided things for children to do. Provided things for pets and animals, making sure that there were restrooms available for individuals and showers available. When the medical teams came in, we set up tent cities even for them that rotated in and out, just making sure that individuals were not only safe from the storm, but those individuals who came in to to help uh, were also provided with medical assistance if they were needed.
8: Niesman remembers that the U.S. Army helped out for a few months.
9: And then we were on our own for at least a year, providing services uh, for the individuals, the residents, and the visitors to South Miami-Dade County.
8: For the most part, the money for the Dade County Health Department and other public health agencies came from local taxpayers, even though the state did toss some money their way county government set up their own public health boards where they made rules and enforced things like restaurant inspections, mounted vaccination campaigns for diseases like smallpox, and they collected data about
9: whooping cough. We had a smallpox issue uh, in our Haitian community uh, during those early years. The public health department, uh, you know, had to do massive immunization for smallpox because a segment of our population had not been vaccinated. That was, you know, that was a tremendous experience. Through those years, you know, the Miami-Dade County officials, I believe, recognized the importance of public health because we certainly helped them with swimming. We helped them with all of the environmental issues. We did coordinate and always uh, coordinated with the state and making sure that our response was one that was appropriated. And if we needed any state or regional resources, then we were able to pull uh, from those resources.
7: Even though the county health departments were independent, they were still part of a statewide system. And this is going to sound wonky because it is, but the state was split up into 11 different districts.
9: I reported to that district administrator, and then that district
7: administrator would filter up to Tallahassee. At this time in the mid-1990s, Florida was controlled by Democrats, and Fred Lipman was a Democratic state representative from Broward County.
10: I've been involved in the political realm uh, probably Daniel before you were born, since 1968. I was appointed to the uh, the board of commissioners of the South Brown Hospital District, which is Memorial System, back in 1968. So I've been around.
8: And Lipman says this decentralized system of public health was really starting to fall apart in the mid-1990s because the money mostly came from local tax dollars. You had rich counties and you had poor counties.
10: And it was during that period of time that a lot of Rural hospitals were going out of business, closing them. Don't forget, we have a huge state. I mean, our state, if you go from the Keys to Pensacola, you're halfway to Chicago. People don't realize how large our state is. There was this inconsistent, and I believe, in my mind, totally inappropriate and ineffective way to provide health care to all of the citizens of the state of Florida. You know, there were people that were going 80, 90 miles to get certain elements of health care which you and I would take for granted.
8: So Lipman starts to make noise about this And he says he had the ear of the Democratic governor at the time, Lawton Childs. And he says the governor was receptive and he wanted to pass a big reform.
10: You know, he understood it. And he came from from, uh, some original stock of, of Florida. And all of a sudden now, the small 30 to 60 to 90 bed hospitals disappeared. Rather than relying upon just each county being either tax-rich or tax-poor and using monies and saying, well, we have to repair the sewer system, so therefore we won't take care of health care, or we have to do uh, a road or a bridge and we're not going to do health care, that was unfair.
7: The idea that Lippmann has is to create an entirely new Florida Department of Health, which would put everything that these local health departments did under one office.
8: These are things like monitoring water and air quality, trying to get rid of lead paint in housing, providing affordable cancer screenings, and getting people vaccinated, of course.
7: And under this new conception, local county departments of health would now fall under the state. And instead of having oversight from county commissioners or the county health board, the oversight and the funding would come directly from Tallahassee and not from local taxes. And the intention was that because the money would be coming from statewide taxpayers and not just from local taxpayers, smaller, more rural counties could have access to better public health services. And I will mention there are still places today, like in the Florida Keys, where access to public health resources is still a real issue. But the intention at the time was to make it better.
8: So in 1996, the Florida legislature passes this huge new law that creates the Florida Department of Health. And in 1997, this goes into effect. Annie Niesman, who was the director of the Dade County Health Department, went through that transition. And she says it did make a big difference.
9: It was easier. I'll put it to you that way. It
7: wasn't the levels of bureaucracy, I'll say, that you had to go through. Some people who worked in public health at the time of this transition had a different take. Dr. Jeffrey Goldhagen was a director of the Duval County Health Department, which covers Jacksonville.
1: There are 67 counties in the state. Those counties had semi-independent health departments. All were uh, related to the state. Um, All looked to the state for direction and funding at the state level. The, uh, the, there were public health professionals who had committed their lives and professional careers to, to public health. And we worked together as a team where the expertise at the state was provided to that of the county health departments. And the best interest of the county health departments was the focus of the state. That system has been
7: dismantled. Flash forward and Goldhagen points to how the COVID-19 pandemic has played out as fuel for his criticism. That things were better back when local public health experts had more authority. So, of
8: course, the COVID-19 pandemic comes along in March of 2020. And just like in the days of yellow fever in the late 1800s, public health once again becomes the state's central focus. Governor Ron DeSantis had only recently chosen Dr. Scott Rifkes as Florida's Surgeon General. They would barely worked together, and one day at an April press briefing, Rifkes started sharing advice on how to stay safe from the coronavirus that causes COVID 19.
1: Certainly do not work when we are sick. And again, for the elderly, these individuals need to avoid going out in public.
8: And And it didn't match up with the message DeSantis wanted to send.
1: Uh, We are at a plateau situation, but cannot emphasize enough that we cannot let our guard down at this present time. Until we get a vaccine, which is a while off, this is going to be our new normal, and we need to adapt and protect ourselves. Thank you.
8: In the middle of the briefing, a staffer approaches Rifki's and leads him out of the room. Almost a year would pass before Florida residents or lawmakers would hear from Rivkees again.
7: And this really confuses and alarms some people, that in the middle of a global pandemic, it looks like the Surgeon General of Florida is being censored. When Rivkees does reappear at a committee meeting in the Florida House of Representatives, lawmakers are told they would not even be able to ask him questions. This is, is nine months after his last public appearance. Democratic State Representative Carlos Smith from the Orlando area was completely outraged at this. I understand that we have an agenda to get to, but after over 25,000 Floridians have died from COVID, I, I don't really understand what's more important than our ability to ask questions of our state Surgeon General. I think that I might be speaking for, I don't know, Democratic and Republican members of this committee who worked hard to be the voice for their communities. And I think that we deserve an opportunity to ask the Surgeon General simple questions about public health while he's here. It just contributes to the perception that this process is a sham if we cannot be able to ask legitimate questions to the top public health officer in this state. In August of 2021, Rifkes would resign.
0: This is from the podcast Tallahassee Takeover. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next, how the new Surgeon General has continued to change how Florida practices public health. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We'll be right back.
4: Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family owned and operated since 1936 and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, always be celebrating.
0: Welcome back to the Florida Roundup and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville.
2: And I'm Tom Hudson in Miami. Thanks for supporting public broadcasting in your community. Most states do not have a Surgeon General, but Florida has one. The position is the state's top public health official. It has been a lightning rod of controversy throughout the pandemic and helped shift the decision-making for public health in Florida away from county-run health departments to the state government.
0: First, Surgeon General Scott Rivkees was out of the public spotlight throughout most of the public health emergency, and he wasn't allowed to answer questions from the public or lawmakers. Rivkees eventually resigned. Florida's new Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Latipo, has not shied away from controversy and giving voice to Governor DeSantis's opposition to vaccine and mask mandates, among other policies. Now, this is where WLRN's Danny Rivero and Veronica Zaragovia pick up the podcast, Tallahassee Takeover.
7: The new Surgeon General Latipo was known at the time for promoting controversial and unproven treatments for COVID-19 and casting doubt about the safety of vaccines for COVID-19. In fact, Ladapo refuses to disclose if he's been vaccinated or not. Both he and Governor DeSantis publicly reject any mask mandates, business restrictions, and other measures that were being recommended by the CDC at the time.
8: Although the department does promote COVID-19 vaccines under Ladapo's leadership, it's really faded to the background when it comes to public health messaging.
7: Shortly after he comes on board, LATAPO backs an executive order banning local school districts from implementing mask mandates, an issue we tackled in a previous episode of Tallahassee Takeover.
11: At the end of the day, uh, these health protocols are based in evidence, but we have no need for any theater in Florida. And so if you're forced masking employees just for the appearance of safety, that is not a sufficient justification and you're not doing best uh, by your employees. The other
7: the governor's office releases a video that says, Buck the CDC, which sounds exactly like what you think it sounds like. And with Dr. Lattipo at the helm as a state surgeon general, Florida's Department of Health becomes almost like an extension of the governor's office. The governor and Surgeon General Lattipo have continued doing press conferences together in a complete reversal from how things were under Dr. Rivkes, who was largely hidden from the public.
11: And I I think that'll be helpful for a lot of parents, you know, as they as they look to this, because I think there's certainly from mass media and stuff and saying that somehow that this is something that you absolutely need to do. So final thought
4: before I wrap it up, I think you you were uh, you actually provided my the introduction to our announcement, which is the Florida Department of Health is going to uh, be the first state to officially recommend against the covid-19 vaccines for healthy children.
8: This is counter to the recommendations coming from federal health agencies, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and other such groups. And remember, there are no local health departments at this point. All the county health departments are run by state officials, so the governor and the surgeon general are setting policy at the top. And state officials have to fall in line, or else. This is from WFTV Channel
0: 9 in Orlando. One of the lead voices in the fight against COVID-19 in Orange County
7: is on paid administrative leave this afternoon. In February of this year, the director of the Department of Health in Orange County, where Orlando is, wrote an email to his staff. He was upset that their own vaccination and booster rates were too low for public health officials. He called it pathetic and urged them to get vaccinated.
0: In it, he wrote, quote, I have a hard time understanding how we can be in public health and not practice it. He added he had an analyst run vaccination data for employees. There are 568 active staff at the FDOH, and only 77 had received a booster.
7: Shortly after, Tallahassee put Pino on administrative leave.
8: The state reinstated him after about two months. A Department of Health spokesperson wrote in a statement that they disagreed with any pressure to get vaccinated. Florida even has a law against any COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Jeffrey Goldhagen looks at all of this and says public health in Florida is in a serious crisis.
1: It would not be hyperbole to say that, in fact, we have no Department of Health. We have no public health system anymore in the state of Florida that is in any way competent enough to be able to fulfill their role and the expectation of the community's role uh, for the protection and advancement of individuals' health. Uh, The role of the Surgeon General has now become the role of a political pawn uh, to reflect the political exigencies of the governor and of the executive branch. One of the basic principles of public health is that all public health uh, is local. Unfortunately, uh, in this administration, the ability of county health departments to work in the best interests of their community has been truncated and has been eliminated.
7: At the beginning of the pandemic, some cities and counties in Florida did use emergency orders to implement things like mask mandates and curfews and closing public parks. And in retrospect, some of those decisions were not effective, like closing beaches.
8: Right, the beaches were one of the safest places you could be, but we didn't know that then. We were learning on the fly and no one had all the information they needed. Local governments were trying to do what they could to protect public health and prevent the spread of the coronavirus.
7: But those local powers have been rolled back. And now, virtually everything public health related comes from the state and only the state.
12: In Massachusetts, if we want to make a regulation for something related to tobacco or something related to housing, um, it can be done at the local level. And it is a local decision here.
8: Massachusetts takes a completely different approach. It has one of the most decentralized public health systems in the country, there are a total of 351 local health departments, all of them virtually autonomous. Don Carmen-Sibber is the executive director at the Massachusetts Health Officers Association.
12: In the town in which I worked, we had a commissioner of public health, and it was his responsibility. He had an advisory council, but it was ultimately his responsibility if they wanted to have, let's say, masks in place longer than the state, which happened you know things like that the state doesn't it's 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 local authority here which i guess is different than florida
7: cibber thinks that overall this system works great there is some state oversight but for the most part communities make their own decisions based on what works best for that city or town and the funding for these local public health departments in massachusetts comes almost entirely from property taxes which does work in big cities and small wealthy communities, but it can be pretty bad for places that have more poverty.
12: A couple of different communities where you have the exact same size, but one is wealthier or thinks of public health is more important. And you have 10 staff people and they're doing prevention and they're doing, you know, diabetes work and they're doing, you know, all kinds of things. And the other one has two people and they can't keep up and they're doing none of that. And they're poor or they're, you know, they're just not getting the same level of service.
7: Cibber says the state of Massachusetts is trying to figure out a way to help cities coordinate better with each other and share resources across city borders to help address this. But that does not mean that it's moving to become more centralized, along the lines of what Florida did in the 1990s.
12: We need to make sure that those communities that are disproportionately affected, which are usually the communities of color and the, the poorer communities, receive what the same wealthy communities receive.
7: Fred Lippmann created the system that exists today in Florida, where local governments have virtually no say about public health decisions because they're being handled by the state. And Lippmann says it was all worth it.
10: My personal intent and being a, the primary sponsor of the, of the bill was for just that to happen. That, that's that's the basic thesis in which I felt was necessary. So if that was
7: Lipman's intention, he was definitely successful. Florida actually has a pretty progressive system for distributing public health dollars across the state because after Tallahassee took over, smaller rural counties do get more funding than they used to produce in local taxes. What we have now in Florida is a centralized, big-government program created by progressives. Exactly the kind of thing that conservatives and Republicans say that they're ideologically opposed to. Because it limits local decision-making.
13: In this
8: case, though, it's Republicans running a big-government system. Maybe the two parties have more in common than they'd like to admit. How it plays out just depends on who controls the state government.
7: Veronica, thank you so much for coming on. Danny, thanks so much to you. Tallahassee Takeover is a production of WLRN News. This episode was reported and produced by Veronica Saragovia and me, Danny Rivero. It's edited by Alicia Zuckerman. Our engineer is Merritt Jacob.
2: That was from the podcast, Tallahassee Takeover. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. The COVID-19 pandemic is now in its third year and continues impacting the lives of healthcare workers. Darlene Grover lives in Brooksville, a small town north of Tampa. She's been a hospice nurse providing end-of-life care for almost 20 years. She says she's seen a lot of people die, but COVID-19 made things worse.
5: Most of our patients stay with us for months, but with COVID, they die fast. It's hard, you know, when I'm racking up the numbers, you know, in my brain thinking, oh, my God, how many people have I sent to the morgue with COVID? And it's a scary number, me personally, and I only work, what, two and a half days a week. I kept track for a little while, and I think when I got up to 40, I just stopped counting on my own. You know, I just didn't want to know anymore. That was 2020. We're used to the elderly dementia patient. Or the elderly, you know, heart patient when they're in their eighties, and nineties, and we help them transition, keep them comfortable when they go to end of life. When you're forty-something years old and you're dying because of a virus that could have been prevented, and we could have done more to stop the spread of this virus, you know, it's a rewarding job in that they look at you and say, you know, what do I do? We have the answers. Let me get you the right equipment. Let me get you the right medication. Let me hold your hand while this happens. You know, death is a very personal thing, and they're allowing a complete stranger to come in and help them. The nursing shortage has become very critical. You know, we have teams that usually run 20 to 22 staff members. They're down to six. There's not enough nurses to take care of the patients that we have. They just can't do it anymore. It's just too much. hospice is very important to me. Um, I want to be able to help these people, and it's very frustrating. It saddens me deeply when I, you know when they're not getting the care that they need because we just don't have the staff, but I just go and do what I can.
2: That was produced by Stephanie Columbini with WUSF in Tampa. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio.
0: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that fewer children are getting routine vaccinations required to enter school. Health News Florida's Katrine Bruner spoke to Jill Roberts, a professor of public health at the University of South Florida, to discuss reasons for the decline beginning in the first year of the pandemic.
3: I think there are multiple factors. One part of it is that we have less people going to do primary care. And so if you're a parent during this time period, in order to take your child into the doctor's office, you had to make a choice. Is it worth the chance that there could be kids there that have COVID? In which case, you could be putting your kid at risk. The other factor, of course, is that school was mostly online. And so school will require you to bring a health record in for your child to enroll or to continue in school, but they were at home. So there was nothing driving those wellness checks. So then unfortunately, the other factor is probably vaccine hesitancy. It's not the first time we've seen hesitancy. It's been around, but it was much more quiet in the past. COVID vaccine hesitancy really blew up and kind of met a national stage unlike it's ever seen before.
13: Do you think misinformation or anti-vaccine campaigns in Florida may have played a part in fewer children getting routine vaccinations? Yeah,
3: I'm sure that this is true. And it's not just Florida. It's a nationwide problem. So what's different about COVID is people put it in a different category. So they see children actually getting COVID and recovering and seemingly fine. Now, we don't know the long-term impacts of getting COVID. So in their minds, COVID does not equal polio and all these other diseases that we vaccinated for. And so this hesitancy really kind of grew up to say, well, maybe we don't need this. Maybe this is a mild disease. Maybe I'm putting my child at risk. If you put that little amount of doubt in there, people who push anti-vax campaigns will jump on it in a heartbeat.
13: Thousands of children in Florida already received religious exemptions that allowed them to forego required vaccines for school. And national data shows more people may be applying for and getting these exemptions. Why could that be an issue?
3: Yeah, so this is unfortunate. Um, To put some data behind it, there are no major religions that oppose vaccination. In fact, some of the biggest vaccination campaigns in the world are actually led by faith leaders. However, it's a loophole. And so individuals who really don't want to vaccinate, but they still want their kids to go to school, or they still want to get that job or whatever it is that that's the barrier, will jump on that. What percentage of children need to be vaccinated to prevent outbreaks? So being a public health practitioner, I say all of them. (laughs) To answer scientifically, it's really high. In order for us to prevent measles, we have to hit a 95% threshold. In fact, the goal for 2030 is 90%. We were there. So before this last year, we were at 95% of children getting their vaccinations. Why it's so high is measles? Nothing spreads like measles. Now we've seen coronavirus maybe give it Run for its money. But measles was the big barrier where we said, okay, we've got to get all these people vaccinated. Do you know if Florida has done anything to boost vaccination rates over the past few years? I'd say we've done the opposite, unfortunately. And so we've gone against national guidelines that recommend vaccinations in the state of Florida. And so that's unfortunate. I haven't yet seen any official notification against any vaccine other than COVID. Now, obviously with COVID, we've gone against what has been recommended nationwide. But for other vaccines, as far as I know, we're still towing the same line as what the CDC recommendations are.
13: Do you think COVID has permanently changed the way many people perceive vaccinations.
3: Yeah, I think COVID actually brought a lot of shift in things and shift in thinking and in ways that aren't necessarily great. And so when everyone asked me the question, what is my risk? I'd say, no, what's the community's risk? Because you are not safe if we do not vaccinate the community, because I can't guarantee you that vaccine was 100%. So you got to have everyone around you be vaccinated to prevent. And so what COVID has done is really shifted from that community mindset to a me, individual freedom mindset. And so I think that COVID shifted things badly and in a way that's dangerous. It's dangerous for the individual and it's dangerous for the community.
2: University of South Florida Professor of Public Health Jill Roberts speaking with WUSF's Katrine Bruner. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. More still to come.
4: Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com.
2: We're back on the Florida Roundup here from Florida Public Radio. I'm Tom Hudson in Miami.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, more people die in Florida from drug overdoses than almost any other state. Only California has more, according to national statistics. Almost 8,000 Floridians died from drug overdoses last year. That was up 4% from the year before. The most common culprit is... Opiates like prescription painkillers and synthetic opioids like fentanyl, which can be up to 50 times stronger than heroin. Deaths from fentanyl stretch from large urban counties to smaller, more rural areas around the state. Escambia County in the Panhandle saw fentanyl deaths jump more than 350 percent last year. WUWF's Dave Dunwoody begins our reporting from Pensacola.
14: Dr. David Josephs is Clinical Director at Pensacola's Lakeview Center which treats addiction
10: and mental health disorders. We are not doing well in the panhandle. We are at the top of the list in terms of deaths, which is not where we want to be. There's been a push to be able to take pain medications, primarily opiates, to manage your pain. And of course, these medications are extremely addictive.
14: The other issue, says Josephs, is stress and people not understanding the life-threatening impact of using opioids and overdosing on them. About 70% of the 100,000 overdose deaths in the U.S., he says, are from opioids. Opioids are not going away. Joseph says when properly prescribed and closely monitored, they have true therapeutic value in certain treatments.
10: Absolutely. Opioids will remain and should remain a part of medical treatment, but supervised and managed by your physician or your treatment provider. That's really important. Dave Dunwoody,
14: WUWF News. This is Kevin Kerrigan in Fort Pierce. It's bad everywhere, says Dr. Kenneth Pallistrant, the founder of the Pinnacle Wellness Group and a member of the Treasure Coast Opioid Task Force. Fentanyl is a powerful synthetic opioid that is similar to morphine, but 50 to 100 times more potent. It's killing people across the country, in Florida, and along the Treasure Coast.
11: 73% of the deaths that we've seen recently involve fentanyl, and that's tremendous upsurge. And that's a DEA statistic, by the way.
14: Dr. Palestran points to a case last year when a drug dealer in St. Lucie County was busted with about a pound and a half of fentanyl.
11: Two milligrams is a lethal dose. A pound and a half could kill a lot of people. And we're seeing that all the time.
14: The surge in fentanyl deaths comes at a time when it seemed as if the opioid crisis involving prescription drugs was waning. The two are related, says Dr. Pallistrat. The pendulum has now swung from the doctor's office to the street.
11: Because the laws in the different states have cracked down on opiate prescribing, What ends up happening is a lot of these people who are addicted to the prescription opiates uh, and they aren't getting it from their doctors anymore. They go out in the street and unfortunately the stuff in the street is contaminated with fentanyl.
14: Up until 2018, fentanyl used to be mailed into the U.S. from China, says Dr. Pallastramp. Now it's primarily coming from Mexico.
11: The Mexican cartels get the chemicals from China and they manufacture illicit pills So it's not just the heroin addicts shooting up. No, there's so many outlawed pills out there that are manufactured by the cartels and shipped across the border.
14: In 2021, the DEA seized 91 million pills coming across the Mexican border that contain fentanyl. Yeah, I ain't say it's It's chemical warfare against our country.
15: Kevin Kerrigan, WQCS News. I'm Wilkin Brutus in Palm Beach County. This was a scene outside a Palm Beach County Sheriff's office in Palm Beach Gardens in late January. Families who've lost loved ones to overdoses hoped their protest would convince Sheriff Rick Bradshaw to equip his deputies with Narcan. That's the brand name for naloxone.
7: My son suffers from addiction. It first showed itself when he was like 12 or 13 years old. Today he's 30.
15: Maureen Killian leads the Southeast Florida Recovery Advocates, which helped organize the rally.
5: He is today in long-term recovery. He is enrolled back in school
7: and graduating with his bachelor's in nursing in August.
15: Killian and other advocates recently sent a letter to PBSO asking for deputies to carry Narcan. According to the State Department of Health, the increase in overdoses in the area has been linked to stimulants, such as cocaine and methamphetamine laced with fentanyl. PBSO,
3: carry Narcan!
15: Piss off parents whose children have died. That's not a community that you want to have issues with. Justin Kunzelman is co-founder of Rebel Recovery Florida, a nonprofit needle exchange program.
1: The sheriff's an elected official. Enough of the community has experienced overdose at this
15: point to be like, bro, what do you mean you don't carry naloxone? Sheriff Rick Bradshaw declined an interview request, but a spokesperson for the sheriff's office told me deputies don't carry naloxone because of concerns over liability. It's crazy to think that
1: the reason for not carrying the medicine is that you're afraid you'll be
15: liable, but the alternative is that somebody dies. Two-thirds of sheriff offices in the state do issue Narcan to their deputies and train them to administer it, according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. That includes neighboring Broward and Martin counties. The Palm Beach Sheriff's Office also said deputies don't carry Narcan because paramedics usually arrive first to suspected overdoses. Asked for evidence of that claim, a PBSO spokesperson cited a 10-year-old study but said it was no longer available. And Palm Beach County Fire Rescue did not respond to our questions. I'm Wilkin Brutus in Palm Beach County.
2: The continued climb of deaths from opioids comes as Florida has now settled lawsuits against three types of companies playing a role in the prescription pain pill market.
12: Florida is the first state in the nation to successfully conclude litigation against opioid manufacturers, distributors and pharmacies.
2: This is Attorney General Ashley Moody in May when she announced a $680 billion settlement with Walgreens. Walgreens joins 11 other companies that have settled opioid lawsuits with the state, including CVS and Teva Pharmaceuticals. Florida also is part of a national legal settlement with drug distributors.
12: This announcement brings the total funds secured through all of our determined litigation efforts to more than $3 billion for the state of Florida.
0: Now, the state may also get more money as part of a national bankruptcy plan submitted by Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma. The settlement money will be paid out over 20 years. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio.
2: Florida is where baseball's glass ceiling is being broken. A year ago, the Miami Marlins became the first major league baseball team to be led by a woman. Kim Ng is the general manager of the Marlins. And this spring, Rachel Belkovic became the first woman to coach a major league-affiliated minor league team when the Tampa Tarpons took the field. And as WUSF's Carrie Sheridan reports, young fans showed up.
6: I came out here mostly to watch my first baseball game and to see the first woman to manage a team.
16: That woman was Rachel Belkovic, the 34-year-old manager of the Tampa Tarpons. She's the first woman ever to manage a minor league baseball team.
6: It's kind of a, a big deal for a woman to be coaching a baseball team because it's not it's very rare for to see that. What do you think about that? That it's, it really shows how if you want to do something, you can really do it, and that you can do anything if you try your hardest.
16: At a press conference, Belkovic talked about rising from strength and conditioning coach to hitting coach to managing a team that's part of the New York Yankees organization. She said she's motivated by the women who came before her and those who will come after, who see her as a role model. It's been ongoing throughout the years of all of uh, young women reaching out, older women reaching out, dads, girl dads reaching out, so I'm definitely highly aware of it, and it definitely drives my actions pretty much every day. As she dreamed of a career in professional baseball, she recalled seeing Sue Falsoni become the first woman to work as a physical therapist for the Dodgers in 2008. That was about the time when I was starting to get into baseball, and it was really impactful for me to know that there was a woman doing anything, you know, on the field at that time. But still, over the years, Belkovic has faced what she described as blatant discrimination. It's been 10 years of just working to this point. I would say the early years for sure is when I would say I had almost no support in some ways because there were no women. There were plenty of women and girls there. Prior to the game, Balkovic signed autographs for fans. Many were athletes themselves, like Sarah Duenas, a 15-year-old at Davenport High School in Polk County.
13: Well, as a softball player,
6: I enjoy softball and baseball, and the game to me is just, I love it.
16: She says seeing a woman manage a men's team... Yes,
13: it's, it's a very once-in-a-lifetime experience.
16: Her teammate, 17-year-old Jocelyn Huddleston, says she looks up to Balkovic for what she's done.
6: I admire her inspiration to young women everywhere, showing that it doesn't matter where you come from, whether you're a man or a woman, that you can do a man's job and do it better than a man. And she's really showed all of us in Florida that we can do that, and it really is inspiring for me.
16: Huddleston and teammate 15-year-old Amanda Bonilla say that inspiration is needed because there's still a lot of work to do. I wonder for your age group, you know, do you feel like it's an even playing field between boys and girls? You're all shaking your heads no. Not even close.
6: She has definitely broken the barrier to where it was only men managing and coaching, and it just shows us that we're not just limited because in our society we feel very much divided and girls have to be here and boys have to be there and her doing this, it really, it breaks that barrier and makes us realize that we are more equal than we're, we realize. We're more like, it shows us that we're more than what we are and like, we're we're worthy towards ourselves and we can be independent too, yeah.
16: As the sun set on the game and the girls in the crowd reflected on their challenges and possibilities, the woman they came out to cheer for led the Tampa Tarpons to a win, beating the Lakeland Flying Tigers nine to six. It was yet another victory to celebrate. I'm Carrie Sheridan in Lakeland. Well, that's our show.
0: The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT
16: Public Media
0: in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are the producers. Catherine Hobbs is our associate producer.
2: WLRN's director of radio operations and the program's technical supervisor is Peter Meritz. We get engineering help each and every week from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Josh Torres. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Libos at aaronlebos.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross. We'll hear from you next week. Have a great weekend.
4: Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through ABCFWS.com.